0: Welcome to the Self-Made Expert podcast. I'm your host, Philip Morgan, and I love speaking with people who are cultivating economically valuable expertise outside the world of academia and the licensed professions. Some of these conversations end up on this podcast. You can learn more about my work, helping indie consultants build an expertise moat, at philipmorganconsulting.com. Blair Ends. welcome to The Self-Made Expert. Ho oh, ho, Philip Morgan. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So let me see if I have something right about your business. You tell me if I'm getting anything wrong. So today, 2019, you have a business called Win Without Pitching. The What powers this business in large part is expertise that you've cultivated over years. That expertise did not come from schooling or from a curriculum that someone else designed, it came from you, you figured it out, you sort of designed the curriculum yourself, and today that business is doing well in large part due to your expertise. What did I get wrong?
1: Um, nice summary, um, overstating uh, how I did it all on my own without leaning on anybody else. Okay. I'll, I'll be uh, sure to ask about that as we go through this. Okay.
0: So for some of our listeners, they know who you are. They know what you do for others. They don't. So let's start with a little bit of context, uh, aside from the name, which I've already given away. What does your business look like
1: today? So Win Without Pitching is a sales training organization for creative professionals. Creative professionals typically means those in the advertising and design professions, but both of those professions have been undergoing changes and they're morphing um, with all kinds of other professional services. So increasingly, we see, you know, there's kind of quasi or what I consider to be hybrid, creative consulting companies and creative engineering companies. But at, a, at its heart, at the heart of um, our clients businesses, is a creator who sees that they were kind of put on this world to create, and they've chosen to take that calling, if you want to call it that and make it their enterprise. And so I always imagine a designer and I imagine a solo designer. It's usually a woman. It can be a man. And I imagine that person who's <clears throat> has, has this calling, feels like they were put on this earth to create. They decide to build a business around it. Then they quickly discover that um, the business side of the business is not their strength. In particular, that moment when they have to sell, when they're standing up in front of a prospective client and they've got to sell their services, their expertise. And it's a very vulnerable moment because what it is that they're selling is highly personal. And if, if they are rejected, it's a rejection of themselves. So Win Without Pitching is a training company built to help that person in that moment.
0: So what does the expertise look like if we try to separate out the parts of the business that can't be described in MBA terms like, you know, a training business or direct to
1: consumer or whatever. What does the expertise look like? So I've defined the expertise by two variables, the discipline and the market. And I explained the discipline as sales training in the market of creative professionals. I've already explained how the market, the real market is actually larger than the target. And I suspect we'll come back to that but the discipline is larger than the target as well. But to answer your question, when I say sales training, a lot of creative professionals recoil at the S word, but we use it anyway. Um, So you might think, oh, you're an expert at selling. And I don't think of myself as an expert at selling, nor do I think of those on my team, my coaches as experts at selling. I think our expertise is really in knowing the peculiarities of the creative personality, the things that make it selling difficult for them, could take like an X factor type contest maybe, or a pig style contest where where you took different sales trainers or sales consultants, and you took one person and the the challenge was who can make this person a better salesperson? I think I might lose that contest because I Mm -hmm. think there are other people that are more serious sales professionals. Um, I have an outside point of view on what it means to sell. And as you've pointed out, I didn't study other people's curriculum, really. I've learned with one exception, which, which I think we'll come back to, I've really learned most of what I know about how to be a better salesperson by being on the buying side of horrible sales experiences. So I don't, back to my main point, I don't know that that my or our expertise is in sales in general. <clears throat> I think it's knowing knowing this person, this audience, and knowing what makes selling difficult for them and being able to work with them, that creative person in that vulnerable moment, in a way that works for them, that may translate to people outside of the creative professions and it may not. I, what I would say is our approach, I don't think it universally, universally translates to all salespeople in all sales situations. Interesting. Thank you.
0: A little bit more context about your business. It is financially successful in some terms. Um, how would you, how would you sort of contextualize that for people
1: at home? Um, So Win Without Pitching was launched in 2002 as a solo consulting practice. I moved my small young family to this little remote mountain village in the middle of nowhere in British Columbia, and I needed to find a way to earn a living, and I was coming out of the advertising and design professions where I worked in account management, client services, and new business development. And I decided to launch Win Without Pitching as a consulting practice and in the beginning it was all of my consulting was done remotely and we were having kids and raising kids in this idyllic little town so it was a lifestyle business and i earned a decent living mm-hmm. like a decent kind of low to mid six figure living and um and then at some point the kids got older and it became okay for me to travel. And then the kids got older still and my wife decided instead of just doing, or we decided that instead of my wife just doing the book, she would come on board full time and we would pivot from a consulting company to a training company. Um, so we've added staff. We've been bigger headcount wise than we are right now. We need to get bigger again because we've been through a shrinking of not of revenue but a shrinking of headcount mm-hmm. um but we made the shift from a solo consulting practice to a scaled up and kind of infinitely scalable in theory training company um personal income went up revenue has gone up margins are down because now we have a coaching team and we have support staff um I'm at, and I'm at the place where I think um, we've done a lot of kind of house cleaning lately on um, on many, many different fronts. And I don't mean to apply that on, on kind of the personnel front, but mm-hmm. a lot of things that we, we felt our way through, like marketing, like the technology stack, like, you know, getting making decisions about how we're going to deliver our training services and how we're not going to. Mm-hmm. And I think we're now poised at the place where I expect to see significant growth over the next 2 to 3 years. But we're in a good place if you think of you know think of if I think of the life that I live and the income that we earn, we're in a good place. But now that I've got a company that's built for scale, but the next step is really to add significant scale.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. So let's explore what it is about. I, I'm not sure what sort of shorthand label to use for your expertise yet. <laughs> Maybe we'll get there. Um, but what about that was first interesting to you? You mentioned this uh, sort of life change <laughs> relocating to Caslow. Um as being synchronous with starting building the expertise or maybe not, maybe that happened before. So, you know, as you think back, when were you first interested or fascinated with this idea that, um, there's a problem in sales
1: for this particular audience? Good question. I can think of a few moments, but one, one specifically, and I've talked about this before I was doing, um, I was running a regional office for a creative firm, and when I came on board, there were no clients. It's a long story, but my job was really to rebuild that office. And I was in a new business meeting with a prospective client, and I was I was with the president of the agency. And this client, um, or prospective client, had said, uh, "Okay, well, you guys seem like you know what you're doing. What what I'd like you to do is..." um, I've told you about our challenges. I'd like you to come back with some like ideas. What he meant was design concepts on how on uh, uh, how you might like help us with these challenges. And he was very clearly asking us to begin to solve the problem as proof of our ability to solve our problem, mm-hmm. or to solve his uh, proof of our ability to solve his problem and i was in sales mode i was in a lot of sales meetings over that period of time and i just got fed up in that moment i just got tired of giving our thinking away for free so i just put my foot down and i said no we we don't we don't pitch and pitch is the word that we use in the creative professions to describe giving our highest value product away for free mm-hmm. in hopes that the clients will hire us to give our to give us a high volume of low margin mm-hmm. work so i said in that moment I said, no, we don't pitch. And the, but I was not alone. I was with the president of the agency who at the same time I gave my answer, he said, sure. <laughs> so oh. we both gave contradictory <laughs> answers and we looked at each other and I don't remember what happened exactly after that. We kind of extricated ourselves from the situation. And afterwards he said to me, he was a great guy to work for. And he said, uh, Hey, I don't, I don't mind you taking this alternative approach. I don't mind you pushing back on these things, but I, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd appreciate the heads up in advance. (laughs) But I didn't know. I was just frustrated in that moment. And to this day, um, when I think of the advice that we give either in a speech or a training session, I so often I hear – feedback from people who say you know I finally I was in a situation where I was so fed up I finally decided to take your advice and you know what it worked but people have to be fed up before they'll start to challenge conventions and embrace an entirely new way of doing things so I remember that moment specifically and then shortly after that that same boss of mine called me because he head office was in a different market he called me and he said hey I hope you don't mind, but I've just signed you up for three days of sales training. And I said, no, I don't mind at all. I've never, um, I've never had any kind of training. There is no new business training in the creative professions. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I went through the sales training and um, I immediately saw the logic of, of, <laughs> the, there is some science behind this. And the, the woman who was doing the training, her name is Pauline O'Malley. She was... She had this model for how people buy and therefore how you should sell. And she said, the model for how people buy is is the model for how people change. So if you want to become a better salesperson, study change management, I'm going to teach you a system that's built on a specific model of change management. And then so over three days, I drank the Kool-Aid. And at the end of it, I'd already known that shortly I was about to move to this little village in the middle of nowhere I had a vague idea of a consulting practice, but at the end of it, I said, I'm going into business to be a consultant, a new business development consultant in the creative space. Do you want to be my business partner? And so that's how Win Without Pitching was born. It was in collaboration with Pauline O'Malley, who had taught me this system. <clears throat> and then she continued to train me. Um, it was many, many months later when I left and I, my boss is completely clear. When I started, I said, I'm, I'm here for a year, then I'm gone. And I'm moving to this mountain village mm-hmm. and a year turned into 20 months and then, and then I moved on. And so I began with, i essentially licensed this, this person's IP in the early days. And at some point I started to kind of drift away from that IP and develop my own. So after a couple of years, we, we severed the relationship. It was a good relationship for both of us. <clears throat> and then I took things in the new direction, but I've um, that core idea that selling, Buying is changing and selling is change management. That's been such a powerful idea. And I've since discovered other models that are equally helpful, other ways to look at selling, like s- selling complex B2B in a complex B2B sale. Selling is leadership. If you if you want to become a better salesperson, you can read a b- any book on change management. You can read any book on leadership. And there are other models for it too. So she really opened my eyes to... A lot of what we do now is we help our, our clients beyond selling. We help them get better at what they do. And that often means exploring models, strategy models out of which intellectual property gets built, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that was really eye-opening for me. Okay. Let's go back to that that moment where you blurted out, uh,
0: embarrassing your <laughs> boss perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Um, what sort of What was the context for you at that point? Did you have any models where you'd seen another way in which selling could happen or in which pitching could not be done or was, um, I'm not disbelieving you, but I'm also wondering, was it really just this sort of spontaneous moment of frustration where the consequences didn't matter? Because that seems like a very pivotal moment and I'm keen to understand it.
1: Yeah. And that's very astute. It's its that moment, I think, is almost always the genesis of people jettisoning, jettisoning convention mm-hmm. and deciding, "I don't, I don't care what the costs are. I've just had enough." I'm, a, and I know this objectively from various assessments. I'm a very kind of proud person. Mm-hmm. Um, I would rather be poor than constantly be in this position where I had to sell from what I would now call the vendor position, where I had no power or authority in the sale. I would go do something else for a living. So it's a character flaw of mine that has informed my point of view on how sales should be done. Um, And we can come back to that. Like, I think, you know, if you have no power in the sale, and you have nothing against which to push back. So when we talk about helping somebody improve their sales or new business development effectiveness, it always starts with positioning. It always starts with building deep expertise first. And then once your scene is meaningfully different, then, then you can lever against that. And you can, when you push back in the moment, the client is more likely to say, okay, well, what do we do next then? And in that moment, I think he just said, see you later.
0: Interesting. So was there, I am I'm imagining this moment in some drab meeting room, He <laughs> blurred out, we don't pitch. You've, I, I suspect have created a new problem for yourself at that point, which is, well, what do you do instead? The sales training came along what, weeks or months later
1: after that? Um, yeah, weeks or months okay. later. So I don't remember in that situation, but I remember another situation that was similar to it that came after that. Because uh, w- what I was going to ask, and, and maybe this
0: will help with your answer, is <clears throat> were you bereft of of a, of a navigational system at that point? Or yes. did you start experimenting? What, what did you do
1: next? So... I was, that's a great way to put it. I was bereft of a navigation system, but I remember in a subsequent meeting, um, this is back in the days when companies used to publish elaborate, beautiful annual reports. And I know that still happens a little Mm -hmm. bit from time to time, but that business has largely gone away and turned into something else. So the firm that I was working for had a annual port design, uh, had an annual report design practice area that was quite accomplished. And I was in a sales call with somebody who trying to sell annual report design. And they said, okay, well, we're talking to three different firms. We'd like you to come in with, come back with some high level concepts of the design that you would recommend for the annual report. And then we'll choose on that basis. And I said, uh, I said, uh yeah we're not going to do that we don't we're not in the business of giving our thinking away for free but i'll tell you what in the most recent awards show we won gold silver and bronze for annual report design we took all three awards so i'll come back with all three of those reports i'll explain them to you at a high level you and your other decision makers the other people in the team. And then you pick one and I'll, we'll treat it as a case study and I'll walk you through you know, what the process was like and how we arrived at it. And then if you want to hire us on that basis, great. If you want to hire somebody who comes in and pitches some design for free, that's fine too. And they agreed to that. We did exactly that and they hired us. So that may have been the first validation I had that you don't have to do it this way. You don't have to do it the way it's always been done in air quotes.
0: Something that's interesting, some of our listeners may know this.
1: You you talk about process
0: frame case studies, which strikes me as the thing you did with that award-winning annual report. My question is some things survive some ideas survive validation, some do not. This one clearly has survived is there a way that you validate ideas? Um, we could look, in fact, at this this passage from, uh, sorry, we don't pitch, to what do I do now, to here's an alternative approach. We could look at that as an idea that was validated. Do you do you now have a way that you do that with ideas? Is there some sort of process? It's okay if not. I'm, I'm just curious how that works in, in your world.
1: Well, I think it's the big secret in consulting, um, especially among independent consultants who are kind of vertically specialized the way I am. And maybe it's just my secret and I'm the only one who's kind of We're all dying doing to hear a Blair. It this way. <laughs> but it, the big, I thought when I launched a consulting practice, I thought I had a vague recoll- I had a vague idea and a small amount of success around this idea that you could win without pitching. And I thought, well, I know a little bit, I'll try to teach it. And I I thought, so the question in my mind was Have I been, have I accumulated enough knowledge to be able to teach? And what I didn't appreciate then, but I came to appreciate fairly quickly, is you actually learn really fast. You learn a lot faster as a consultant than you do as a practitioner, because as a consultant, you're giving out what you think think is good advice and you are um, unhindered by the baggage of all the reasons why this advice can't be applied. And you say, no, 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 just trust me, apply this advice. And then it either works or it doesn't, but because you're work, you tend to be working with multiple clients. You're actually working faster. Mm -hmm. So I, (laughs) I, uh, in the early days, I had theories not a lot of which were validated. And I put them forward almost as statements of facts. And I asked mm-hmm. people to just trust me. And I remember the first piece of validation I got back as a consultant or a client called me from the car saying, you're not going to believe this, but it worked. I actually have the signed contract in my hands. And I went, it worked. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that sounds like an unguarded moment. <laughs>
1: yeah. And there's been uh and to this day I've been doing this since 2002 when I end a training engagement I always say it's funny to me I don't know if it is to the audience I always say to my client good luck with this hopefully some of it works
0: <laughs> I think that's very humble that's a it's a very um it's a beautifully humble um admission of something wrapped in a little morsel of humor perhaps I call this leaning out over your skis. You, as a, a much more advanced skier than me, um, no. might have reason to disagree, but that—that's how I think of this. You're, you're taking risk, uh, both social, uh, maybe financial, maybe even physical. I, I don't know that bad advice can make somebody mad enough to hurt you, but there's some risk, right? Yeah. There's certainly uncertainty about whether it will work every time, so uh is that something you've always done, taking those sorts of risks?
1: Uh it's a good question. I think I have I think I have the personality for advising others on on bold moves. Um because I'm fond of saying that um it's well, I'll maybe express this a couple of different ways. When I'm writing, when I'm putting thought leadership in air quotes out there, content, I'm putting forward a strong point of view and I'm adamant that I have no obligation to be right. Hmm. Uh, I have an obligation to provoke, to get people to think differently. If people want to take action on the ideas in the way that I've advocated, they're going to learn something. I'm a big believer that action yields information. Inaction does not. So even when you take action and it doesn't work, you learn something. Um, So I feel that way about my thought leadership. And similarly, but not exactly the same way, I I feel that way about the advice that I give to clients. And now we're a training company now and not a consulting company, but they're similar enough that these Mm -hmm. situations still exist where i would think i um give the client some advice and what i think they should do and i hope it's right but even if it's not right they are going to benefit from taking these steps because anytime we hire a consultant or an outside advisor we're looking for that that person to bring us the impetus or the inspiration or whatever it is to take action. Mm. And I see that as the job of any advisor. And I think if you're in a really risky environment where there's significant legal or significant financial consequences, um, there are other situations where maybe this, you wouldn't be so kind of liberal in in your interpretation of your role Mm -hmm. as an advisor. But my job is to empower people to take action and i don't think my advice has to be kind of universally right or absolutely defensible it has to be a good idea that the client can apply and learn something from and there's a with a high probability that it's responsible effective advice yeah Well, you know what I'm going to ask next? Has that ever gone wrong? Oh, I'm sure it has. Um, I'm more surprised by. You know what? Let me, let me defend my,
0: uh, brazen (laughs) question, which is this, to me, this is about risk, the risks that you take as an expert. So, The fear, the uncertainty about what could happen if it went wrong. I'm wanting folks who are listening to this to hear what's the worst case scenario when you see your role as using good ideas and reasonably good advice to motivate change. I hope that's a fair assessment of what what you've just said or a decent summary. Um, What if it goes wrong? Like what's the worst case scenario?
1: That's a good question. Um, I'm reminded of a story. Maybe ten years ago, I was working as a consultant, new business development advisor to a small firm, solo owner. She called me one Friday afternoon in a panic. She said, "Yeah, I just had this thing happen in my office. It had nothing to do with new business." She said, "I uh, one of my employees forged my signature on." She had three or four employees forged my signature on their paychecks, which were sitting on my desk while I was out. <clears throat> um, and it was a new employee. And she's, she was freaking out. She was panicking. She said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I said, uh, "I'm first of all, I'm thinking, like, why are you calling me? <laughs> and she was calling me because – I was one of her advisors, not in this area, but she needed to know what to do. And I said, shouldn't you call your accountant? She said, I called my accountant and he, he, he wasn't able to tell me what to do. He didn't have any advice for me. Mm -hmm. And I got so angry in that moment Mm -hmm. about that accountant. I thought that is, you are so fine. You're so irresponsible here. You have a client, you have this financial situation, financial legal situation, and you're worried you don't give her any advice because you're worried about the blowback on you. Mm. And I so I with no experience, I said, here's what you do. You call the three people. There's three of them were kind of complicit in it. I said, You call them into the office, you start with one person, you say this, and you say, um, I'm giving you a pass on this, but I'm writing this up. Or mm-hmm. I, I forget forget what it was. The second, and then you go to the second one. And you say you should know better, you're being reprimanded. And then you go to third one, you say you're fired. And then I said to her, Do that in the next 30 minutes and call me back. And mm. she went, Okay. And so what are the did I do I have any business offering that kind of what is essentially legal HR advice in a jurisdiction where I don't know anything about the it was Texas, so I could make some assumptions that it was an at will state. Um, But I don't know anything about employment law. They let people Uh, carry guns there too, Blair. Yeah. And I just know (laughs) this is what I would do. And I was so fueled with anger at the accountant. What I saw as the accountant abdicating his or her professional responsibility, maybe not as an accountant per se, Mm -hmm. but as an advisor to this small business owner. So i didn't care i didn't care what the costs were to me if i'd got this wrong if she'd fired the wrong person or did something wrong i had this client of mine who was in this moment of need and needed to be told what to do and i told her what to do even though it was beyond my realm and she called me back 30 minutes later and she was so relieved and she said thank you It's it was the right thing to do Hmm. thank you um so i think about that often um I had no business offering that advice. Mm-hmm. If for, if you look at it through one lens and through another, i there's no way I could abdicate my responsibility as a paid outside advisor to this small business owner to empower her to take action in the moment. Thank you.
0: What made this focus on um, this the problem around sales. What made that stick for you for so long? <clears throat> it's been how many years again?
1: I uh, launched Win Without Pitching in 2002. Okay. So 17 years. years, right? Almost 18.
0: Um, wait, am I getting the math wrong? I do that sometimes. <laughs> it's been a while. It involves math. I'll leave it to you. You are a... Um, Clearly a driven person. How have you maintained that focus
1: over that period of time? I don't know that I'm that driven. Um Tell me more. I wish I was more driven. I think you know, I've I've run a lot of assessments on myself because I've run them on my clients and
0: what's what's your disc personality
1: profile? What's I'm a on. classic persuader, so I'm high D but highest I mm-hmm. invisible S and a moderate amount of C low to moderate C. Okay. Um, but in, in other assessment terms, I'm as competitive as the average person, but my competitive makeup is skewed to the need for authority and respect more than it is skewed to the need to win. Hmm. So I don't. I'm not sure how driven I am. I, I I am. I think the success that I've had, if I could chalk it up to anything, I mean, beyond luck and having some good help in the early days and other things that are kind of out of my control. Uh, what I'm most proud of is my staying focused. Um, so I wrote my first book, the one without pitching manifesto was published in 2010 and people outside of the creative. And I, am I imagined a single designer. I wrote that imagining a single designer Mm -hmm. or kind of an owner of a very small design firm. That was the target market, even though it's intended for all creative professionals. So people way outside of the creative professions have bought that book. There's over 30,000 copies, sales and annual sold, sorry. And annual sales go up every year. And I, um, I routinely hear from people who say you know i'm not in the creative professions but this 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 uh this advice applies to me exactly you should rewrite this book or write another version of this book and broaden it out to other audiences and i've uh and and you should broaden out your consulting or training practice to other audiences and um I kind of struggled with that a little bit at first. And then I just resolved to follow my own advice. And in the winter pitching manifesto, which I have right here, it's got 12 proclamations. And the first proclamation is we will specialize and it talks about the power of focus. So even though I'm a kind of a highly distracted creative person myself and focus is difficult for me, I like the bright, shiny things. Mm -hmm. We have stayed focused. Now, I have pivoted the business model and adjusted the business model many times, probably to my detriment, probably a few too many times. Mm -hmm. Um, Temptation to broaden this out outside of creative professions.
0: How have you done that? Have you had a moment of temptation that almost got the best of you?
1: I've experimented with, so I launched a consulting company in Australia, Asia Pacific with a friend down there and it's win without pitching professional services. And so we launched this as an experiment, as an experiment and she was going to head it up and then something happened in her family and made business that caused her to, she's got to spend a couple of years working on something else. So we'll see if we resume that experiment. Um, That's the appropriate way I believe to branch out into other verticals rather than broadening out when without pitching. If I were to broaden, if I would were to just drop the creative professionals and say sales training for everybody. Yeah. We the target audience grows significantly um, by like orders of magnitude, but I also invite all kinds of competitors against which I have very little that's meaningfully different except for those in the creative professions. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just a simple, maybe it's a simple math question. I look at the math and I think, oh, it just makes sense to stay focused here. Mm-hmm. I also understand that the the target's larger than the market. I aim at creative professionals. And if I look at a typical training workshop we run, probably 10% of those in the audience are outside of the creative professions. And that's fine.
0: What is, would you say, the biggest risk you've taken in your own business?
1: (sighs) Spending money where I didn't know that the return was there. And I think early in the transition from a consulting company to a training company, my vision for hiring coaches was I was going to um, I was going to use a model that I had borrowed from Strategic Coach, where my coaches would have been clients of mine that I had trained many years earlier, but who are running their own firm. Right, and so they would be paid based on the, you know, the the amount of business that they were managing. Mm-hmm. And early on, one of the people I approached, she wanted to come to work for me full time and then um somebody else was going to come with her so i um i said yes to two six-figure salaries um when we didn't have the revenue wasn't there yet and i think that was a risk i would say yeah for sure
0: so if if you can do your best to inhabit (laughs) inhabit the moment of that decision whether the moment was six months or six minutes. It doesn't matter. Did that risk uh, feel to you like a compass or a magnet? Did it feel like guidance of some sort? Did it feel like it had a sort of repellent or attractive force? And if not, what did it feel like?
1: That's a good question. Well, it it was exhilarating. Taking risk is exhilarating, and that and that can actually be addictive. I think entrepreneurs, um, the one common characteristic of all entrepreneurs is the their propensity for risk, and I think as entrepreneurs, sometimes we can get addicted to that risky moment. It was because those big risky moments when you decide. You're going to shift the direction of the business or you're going to, um, that was another one, shifting from training, from consulting to training, or you're going to, um, you encounter a person or a set of people where you think, well, I can't afford you right now, but this this moment might not come up again. So I'm going to go ahead and spend money that I don't have. Um, there's a danger, like a, a couple of those pay off and I I can imagine... The entrepreneur just going for the bigger and bigger thrill where each one of these bets, you might be betting the business and then finally one blows up on you and it costs you the business.
0: That one you said was exhilarating in uh, like, what does that feel like? Just imagine that <laughs> I've never felt exhilaration in this world what is it what would what would you compare it to what does it feel like
1: well it's uh it's like uh joy and sorrow are the two sides of the same coin where mm. you can't you can't experience sorrow if you've never experienced joy mm. and the greater joy joy you have in life the greater the depth of sorrow you're able to feel the more you love someone the greater you will feel their loss when they're gone and i think the same a principle principle applies to exhilaration and taking risk um there's the risk and the reward there's what you're gambling what it might cost you and what you might gain, and I've forgotten your question now. Well, uh, what does it what does it feel like? Yeah, I'm
0: I'm saying um, imagine uh, that you know I've been in a sensory deprivation tank for a yeah. year or something. What is it? What is this feeling of sizing up the risk? However, you did,
1: then you felt exhilaration.
0: What does that feel like?
1: Well, you feel it before you make the decision. Okay because you try it on what you do is you and you you um you overweight the benefits of this change this decision and you get you feel exhilarated with just trying it on as you get closer to making the decision <clears throat> and then if you wait too long or at some point you the costs become you you now underweight the benefits of change and you overweight the costs or consequences. That's <clears throat> that's what buyer's remorse is. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the buyer's remorse sets in even before you buy, depending on how quick the transaction is, it might be after. Um, I've forgotten your question
0: again. It's, it must not be a very interesting <clears throat> question. <laughs> no. What does it feel like? What does the exhilaration of risk feel like?
1: So you... You're experiencing the exhilaration of risk even before you make the decision, mm-hmm. and then you make it, and it's just like a—it's like the cherry on top. It's a like, serotonin yeah. release. You feel elated because what you do is psychologically you're you are um, you are achieving the emotional benefits of having change, of having acquired your desired future state. You move yourself forward into into the future, and you imagine getting what you want. You imagine the beautiful outcomes that you're that you're pursuing. You try them on, and as you're imagining them, you 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 achieve the emotional benefits of getting w- whatever it is that you want. And then that is often the trigger to say, "Yes, I'll do it." So mm-hmm. that that's where the exhilaration comes from. You can you can you feel you taste what success looks and feels like emotionally. And then that serotonin release starts to wear off. It peaks at about four hours. And then you start to think, oh, have I made a mistake here? And there is no low without a high. So the higher you go in that moment of exhilaration, the deeper the buyer's remorse is likely to be. The bigger the gap between the up and the down, That's man, That's the bigger the, that space, the more you're living life. And and that and and that can become addictive, right?
0: it It sounds like you're speaking from some degree of personal experience there.
1: Yeah, I think in that moment, and often, you know, if not personal experience, then you you know, we this is this is a model that we borrow from to think about the sale and how you manage people's emotions throughout the sale. They get inspired early and your job is to inspire them. And then once they're inspired, your job is to calm them down because they're going to start to get really nervous. Mm -hmm. So you inspire the interested and you reassure the intent. So it's a conversation I've had and thought about a few hundred times. Um, Not so much in my own personal life, but it's great to be asked the question and to think of that moment. Or I also think of another big moment where I had been de- in 2012, I had been dabbling with uh, training programs, recurring revenue, scalable training programs, but mm-hmm. I was still running a consulting company. And I realized you can't do both. These are two entirely different businesses. Mm-hmm. And um, I was on a plane to go work with a consultant, with a client on a consulting basis. And I decided on the plane, this is my last client. This is my last cl- consulting client after today. Um, we're a training company and Mm -hmm. I got off the plane and I said to my client, you're my last client. And then I went home and wrote a 3,500 word blog post. And I posted that article on my website. And that was my way of saying to the world, that was my way of putting a declaration out into the world that would not allow me to turn back. Mm -hmm. So I was forcing or escalating my own sense of commitment. Um, And the feeling of, well, I've burned the ships. I've said it to the client. I've said it to my spouse, who's my business partner. And now I've (laughs) set it to the 10,000 or so people who were reading my blog at that time. Yeah. Now I can't, I've, I'm all in. I've got to be all in. I've effectively burned my ships. And that is a fantastic moment that like knowing that there is no, you know, hedging your bet, like Warren Buffett has this great line, um, Diversification, and I'm going to bastardize it. It wasn't word for word, but he says, diversification is for people who don't know what they're doing. Hmm. And so this idea of hedging your bet, oh, kind of this business model, kind of that business model. Mm-hmm. There's something, I love a bold statement, a grand gesture. I love people, I find it so inspiring when people do something with confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to be that wishy-washy person who always had kind of like, a, well, like, if this doesn't work out, I could always do that. I could ramp up this part of the business. So that that was an exhilarating moment of deciding, I'm changing business models, come hell or high water, I'll take whatever the consequences are. What um, When
0: you think about impact, your expertise has impact on people. Uh, maybe that's not the perfect word, but it affects people. It produces positive change. That's impact for our for the purposes here. How do you? How have you seen that over time? Is that something you look for? Is it a happy byproduct? Is it something you're engineering your business to achieve? Tell me a little bit about how you think about impact.
1: That's a good question. Um, it's the most valuable part of what I do. It's not the money. It's not the kind of the notoriety from the books, et cetera. Um, Both of those are meaningful, but the most meaningful part is the feedback on personal change. So I'm fortunate enough. I've been doing this long enough. I've got a couple of really well-selling books. I've got a podcast that's fairly well-followed that I, most days I get a thank you from somebody Mm -hmm. in a, an email or a message on LinkedIn or somewhere else. So mo- most days. And uh, that's really humbling and gratifying. And it, I love, like I got one yesterday about my business went from 350,000 to 2 million. Just in, I forget what the time period was, just from reading your books and following your advice. And that's meaningful. But the most meaningful ones are really the ones of personal transformation. I, I remember the first time somebody, one of my early clients said to me, he'd been an owned an agency for over 25 years. And he said to me for the first time in my professional life, I feel like the expert. Wow. Like that idea of feeling I've, I've, I've been this business owner sharing, selling my ideas and advice for over two and a half decades. And I've never felt like the expert. So that's a real moving one to me that those, you know, it's, we don't typically work with the um, with companies where ownership is separated from management, mm-hmm. and there is a bunch of reasons for it. Um, but the most meaningful consequence of that is the people we're helping. We're not only you you help a small business owner or a business owner, no matter the size of the business, build a better business. You help that person achieve a better life. Mm. Yeah. It's it's Uh, very
0: directly coupled, right? Yeah. So we're looking back on this. If we flip around to the other side, um, we're not that many years away from where you, you know, sort of blurted out in the, uh, the conference room, we don't pitch. (laughs) Um, what impact were you seeking at that time?
1: wasn't seeking any impact at that time I was just like drawing a line in the sand I was saying yeah I'm not doing this anymore when did you start seeking impact
0: when did that become a motivating force for you
1: well so it was after that moment because I was still somebody else's employee in that moment Hmm. and um it wasn't until I started my consulting practice that I really sought to make an impact. But I think before you have your first client, perhaps you don't appreciate the ways in which you will have an impact. Like that that story I told about advising a client of mine to fire somebody to right. how to treat the other two employees. I wonder if she, I haven't talked to her in years, I wonder if she's still... Uh, remembers that, or ever thinks about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was deeply impactful in the moment. I remember it as a lesson of a bunch of different things. Therefore, it was impactful to me. I don't know that, uh, who knows whether or not there's any kind of lasting value in that. And we just, you know, impact is, uh, it's like value. It's all entirely personal. You expect to have an impact in a certain way. You have an impact in so many other different ways, and most of those you'll never even know as an expert advisor. You just won't know. Um, And then you'll hear a story and think, "Wow, that's incredible! I can't believe I can't believe I had that impact on you." And every once in a while, like I'll say, I'll hear from people who say, "I remember when you said X," and I'll think. I've never made that statement to anybody ever in my life. <laughs> so they'll attribute to you, in this case to me, advice that was not yours, or they'll interpret your advice incorrectly, sometimes 180 degrees incorrectly, and thank you for the impact that they've had. You know, That's fascinating. it's all in the perceiver. It's all in the, we think we're going to impact somebody in some ways and they get something entirely different out of it. So the conference room happens. Um, that's my
0: shorthand for this pivotal event. The training happens, but um, and I'm sure you were an active participant in the training and active in applying those lessons, but we might also think of that as something that happened to you What forms of learning or research did you initiate on your own once you started to go down this path of, uh, I'm going to help creative professionals sell better or uh, feel better in that situation?
1: Well, I'm a writer. So the first thing I set out to do was to write down everything that I knew. And as I was writing, I realized this is a book. And then I thought, well, I'm going to make this book available for sale. And I, I had one of my subsequent thoughts was, um, well, I'm, uh, I'm not going to sell this for $25. I'm going to sell it for $1,000. So I sold this book for, this is pre-manifesto. It was just called The Win Without Pitching Guidebook. Mm-hmm. Um, so the professional development initially was me synthesizing what I had already known, what I had already been experienced, and what I had been taught by Pauline O'Malley, into this book. I, um, and I wrote about this recently, it'll be published shortly, it's an article called I Don't Write Good Anymore, (laughs) but I learn by writing. In fact, I think um, most experts learn by writing. So you read, you absorb information in other ways, and then you really formalize your thinking through the writing process. What what what
0: makes you think that is that um, I'm I'm not challenging I'm just really curious what's behind that What have you observed that makes you think most experts learn in that way?
1: Uh, I was telling you before we hit record that I've I just wrote that piece Mm -hmm. called I don't write good anymore and it was the culmination of an experiment that went for almost a year where for the entire calendar year I was trying to read I was trying to not read any. Nonfiction books. And I, I wasn't successful. It took me a while to stop my habit of voracious reading. Mm-hmm. But then once I stopped, I, I read very little for the rest of the year. And there were a lot of great things that came out of that experiment. Um, but I'm, I've ended it early, about three weeks sorry, about seven weeks early, mm-hmm. um, because the detrimental effect has been that I have become dumb or dumber, and I don't mean objectively dumb or stupid, but relative. Yeah, I can, I can feel my pace of learning slowing down, and then I've lost, or I had lost my ability to write. And so I started writing about this, and I started reading again, and now I'm writing like a madman. And even a piece that I finished today um, – when I started that piece, I didn't know what I thought about the topic. I had—I knew, I would say I, I had a, like 75% of it mm-hmm. straight in my head. But it's not until I force myself through the painful process of writing, through thinking through my finger, fingers and bleeding into my keyboard, as mm-hmm. I want to say, that I really kind of come out the other end with this crystallized, thought, and it might even be a new thinking model. Um, And so if I'm not writing, I'm not getting smarter quickly. And for me to write, I have to read. So these three things are connected in that way for Mm me. What else? There's
0: writing, maybe that's it, but is there anything else that you feel like has contributed to
1: getting smarter faster? Um, working with clients, I don't do coaching anymore because I've discovered that my coaches are a lot better at it than I am. Mm -hmm. I don't have the empathy that's required. It's not that I'm without completely without empathy, but I don't have the empathy that's, um, it's required to be a really good coach. And I think I have years of thinking that I had to be the person with the answers, and not understanding that I really needed to be the person with the question. So that shift has been hard for me, and then I've watched other people coach who are better at it than I am. But I still do training, and those training sessions, whether they're public workshops or private workshops, um, they really help me to learn because they put me in touch with the client. I think a lot of consultants think – they want to get to this place of what I call consulting without clients. And the place of consulting without clients is really speaking and writing. And my speaking and writing businesses are large enough that I could just do that for a living and, and have a good have a good living. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as you're just speaking and writing and you're no longer working with clients, then you're no longer learning from your clients. So... Remaining active in training, at least at some level, is a vital form of professional development and product development for me.
0: We, Everything in your business has been up and to the right in a smooth linear curve, right? No. I'm pausing for the fact there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think most of the people listening to this are going to um, sort of intuitively understand that uh, these, the growth that we're talking about, both um, you know, financial and perhaps more importantly, the expertise is chaotic's not the right word, but smooth up into the right curve is also not what it is. I want to talk about the moments where there's been some sort of uh, disruption or discontinuity or you felt dissatisfaction about how that is progressing. Maybe even this last year is, is an example of that where you've taken a break um, from reading nonfiction. Anyway, um, were there times when you wanted more impact for your clients than you were achieving?
1: Yes. How did you get through those times? By constantly tweaking my business model.
0: Can you talk more about that?
1: Cause so you also I,
0: referenced that as a, as not a frustration, but like, well, maybe I should do less of that. So
1: there's a tension there, right? There is a tension there. There's a right amount to mess with your business model. And I think when I think of the flattest period of the business and I can't kind of place it in time exactly, but I have this sense of about a four year period where not, not much happened. My, uh, My personal balance sheet didn't really grow in terms of the things that I knew, the areas where I was getting more knowledgeable about. Mm -hmm. And the revenue didn't grow much. It just felt like, ah, just kind of more of the same. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember looking back at the end of that roughly four year period and seeing that, you know, I didn't change anything about the business model in four years. And previous to that, I would tinker with things every 18 to 24 months. Mm -hmm. I once heard our mutual friend, David C. Baker, say from a stage, you should be reinventing your business every 18 to 24 months. This is 15 years ago, I heard him say Mm -hmm. it. And when I heard it, I thought, that might be the most irresponsible advice I'd (laughs) ever heard anybody give from a stage. (laughs) And then I thought about my own business. I thought, oh, that's about the pace that I do it. Uh And then- (laughs) And then after going through this period where kind of not much new happened, not much growth happened, either in the income statement or the balance sheet, um, I realized, oh, it was about a four-year period where I didn't change the business model. I didn't tweak. I didn't test any new assumptions. Hmm. Um, That's the thing about entrepreneurship, right? It's, I forget who said this, but it's like, it's this constant like testing of false, it's you're continually running these falsifiable experiments. Falsifiable meaning they can be proven wrong and they can cost you and they can even put you out of business. Mm -hmm. And when you quit running those experiments, you quit growing. I've forgotten your question again.
0: I want to drill into that. So you, you mentioned tweaks and then you mentioned this big, huge change from consulting to training. That's probably not what you mean when you talk about a tweak. Could you give just a a simple, concrete example of what's more on the level of a tweak for you?
1: Yeah. So I'm thinking you'd asked me a question a few minutes ago, and I was thinking back to uh, in the early days, I would go in and do, I guess, what I would now call training that kind of looked a bit like consulting, Mm. kind of a package. Con training. Okay. Con training. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Um and then I realized, oh, you know, my my clients aren't um they're not implementing my advice to the extent that I would like them to. And they're not achieving the results that I think they should be achieving. So then I started to pack package up ongoing kind of support after that. And at some point I just said, you know, if you're gonna succeed, you're gonna have to buy both of these things from me. Mm-hmm. Um and then I saw so I saw some improvement while I kind of consulted or slash coached for maybe eight weeks or so after that, maybe eight to 12 weeks. But then Mm -hmm. at some point I noticed that um, there was a period where if, if that support went on too long, they became dependent on me. Mm. So then I started to unbundle again. So somebody once said, and it might've been, uh, Milton Friedman: There's only two business models, two two ways to make money in business: bundling and unbundling. So right. part part of business model tweaks are just bundling and unbundling. Right. So then I unbundled, and then I just let go of let go of the fact that um, that uh, there was one right way for everybody to go about changing the way they sold their services. And I needed to be more adaptable. That's an example of a tweak. Another tweak would be um, we've in the last two years been dabbling with public workshops. And now we're, we're doing a lot of work, public workshops. So to the point now where we see that the fir- your first paid step in beyond maybe a book After you get exposed to Win Without Pitching through one of my two books, the first step you would take with us training-wise is you would attend a workshop. And then after that, if you need more training, there's other ways we can deliver training. If you want coaching, we can deliver coaching. If you want to bring other colleagues and team members to future workshops, you can do that. We can bring the workshop to you but the first step in is a workshop. So we've effectively, probably from the outside, it looks like we've become a workshop company Mm -hmm. and that's not entirely true. We're just putting more of the focus on the workshop first. So that would be another example of a tweak. Thank you.
0: Back to this idea
1: of squiggly places
0: in the smooth upward line of either personal growth or expertise, cultivation or financial growth. Were there moments where you were presented with an opportunity and it was somewhat clear to you that it's now or never, I really need to do this. Maybe on that flight uh, where you made this dramatic switch in the business model that was somewhat sudden, maybe that's such an opportunity, but, uh, are there others that were where you just, you just knew it was an opportunity and, and you knew action needed to happen?
1: Like the hiring decision, the decision to shift from a, consulting company to a training company. Now, let, let me back up because we'll, I'll come back to your question, but that shift, it's not like um, people listening should infer that if you're a consultant, you should be a training company. I was caught in the mushy middle of what we've now labeled con training. (laughs) And I realized I was caught in this mushy middle and I needed to go one way or the other. I needed to become a full proper consultant where each engagement would be handcrafted to the specific needs of that client and would be priced to the needs or the value creation opportunities associated with that client or I needed to go the other way and productize and scale. So either of them would have been valid, but I was productizing without the scale. So I wasn't I wasn't a proper consultant and we weren't a proper training company. So I just had to make that decision. And it was deciding that, okay, it's one or the other, pick one. I could have flipped a coin. Either of them would have been fine. So just some clarity around that. But Thank beyond you. those two decisions... I, yeah, I think the biggest one was just we're going to move to we're going to move to this little village in the middle of nowhere. We're going to raise our kids in a beautiful place, and we're going to put money and professional success second to family.
0: I see another facet of that that I want to bridge to our last segment for this conversation—the last uh, fifteen minutes or so that we have. Relationships are, you know, we're all to one degree or or another in an expertise business and definitely in a relationship business. The opportunities to apply the expertise sometimes come from relationships often, I think. You moved, I don't know, away physically from relationships. You moved to a sort of outpost or an edge, right? And... How has that been a part of you you've mentioned this before, by the way, so i'm I'm not making this up. You've said that there's something valuable about that that from the outside in perspective or being on the edge and seeing things from that perspective, it's not just a beautiful mountainscape, right? What else there in that physical location for you plays a role in expertise?
1: Uh, the removal from the heart of the business that I serve. So if you think of in the creative professions, we don't talk about Madison Avenue so much anymore because there aren't a lot of ad agencies on Madison Avenue. They're all kind of in the village or somewhere else that's spread out. But if you think of kind of that um, kind of classical picture of Madison Avenue, that there, that there's a, there's a physical center to this world that I serve, it would be in Madison Avenue. I can't live in Madison Avenue and do what I do. I couldn't, because my my point of view on how all of this should be done is a contrarian point of view. So I work really hard to keep information out. I do not read I don't read any of the the publications or websites that serve the space that I serve so I don't read advertising age ad week brand week the drum um, wh- wh- all of these things every once in a while maybe three or four times a year somebody will send me a link to something in one of these article in one of these publications that I- where I'll read something but for the most part I avoid it I always say I'm going to New York uh, next month and uh, I love New York. But again, let's just let's use New York as the surrogate for Madison Avenue, the physical epicenter of the creative professions. I always say I have to leave after three or four days because after three or four days I start to believe what they say, and what they say is that what I advocate, how you should sell without pitching, can't be done, and so if I stay immersed in that world too long, I start to believe that the things that I'm accomplishing and I have my clients do can't be done. So there's a real interesting tension between being knowledgeable of a market and what's going on, and knowing the things that you need to know about what's going on in a market and not being sucked in by it. And I think the perfect metaphor for this is a book written by gordon mckenzie he's he's passed now for many years but he was a creative professional at uh, hallmark and he wrote a book called orbiting the giant hairball <laughs> great,
0: and the great subt-
1: title. <laughs> yeah and the subtitle is i think it's a corporate fool's guide to surviving life in a corporation or a fool's guide to surviving mm-hmm. the corporate world or something and his metaphor is um the hairball is the corporation where everybody gets sucked into it in this like homogenous thing. Mm-hmm. And what you're trying to do as a creative person working in a corporation is you're trying to stay in orbit. So you're in kind of contact, you're in orbit, but you're not sucked into it. You're still an individual. Mm-hmm. And that's the tension that I see with me and my coaching team and kind of the convention's of the creative professions. So I visit London a lot. I visit New York a lot. And some of the other, I'm in Sydney a lot. So kind of the, the big markets, uh, the, the, the big cities in the big mar- markets that are the epicenters of those countries or those <clears throat> areas, creative professions. Um, and I love all of those places, but I, I couldn't live in any of them. I have to retreat to my place in the woods where, I'm, I'm not bombarded with chatter about, hey, did you hear who won that account and who's moved from this agency to that agency and all of these other things and all of the other kind of infighting that happens in any kind of vertical market. Mm-hmm. I'm just re- completely removed from it all. And I dip in from time to time to learn the things that are actual he- actually helpful mm-hmm. and everything else just goes right by me. I'm resisting the temptation to
0: wonder how you separate the wheat from the chaff. Let's talk about the last thing I'm, uh, well, it's not the last thing I'm curious about, but the last thing we have time for. You've built a platform that attracts opportunity or creates opportunity or there's, you know, one of those is true or some something in between is true. You're out here on the edge. That platform, I believe, is necessary for uh, most experts and I assume for you as well. So did that start with the book? Um, the thousand dollar version of the win with the pre the precursor to the win without pitching manifesto or how has that platform evolved over time?
1: Uh, What can you tell us about it? So I launched it before I started doing this before it was even called content marketing. I think it was probably called educational marketing. And when I, that job I told you about where I kind of eventually pushed back, I was hired to build a, a regional office for an agency and, and the, person who had previously run the office had left and all of the clients were friends of his, so they'd all left too. So I inherit this I sit down in this chair and I think, okay, there are no clients. I've got to go get some clients. How do I do that? And I'm a writer at heart, so I thought I'm not much of a cold caller, although I did some of that. I thought, well, I'm gonna start writing and I said to my boss, I hope you don't mind. I'm just gonna I'm gonna write some things and I'm gonna send them out via fax. Oh wow. And then uh, and then, uh, like, hey, you know what? This I've got an email address. Like, Some other people have email address. I'm gonna start sending some of these via email. So mm-hmm. it was fax, and it was fax and email, and then it was just email. Um, and the first article I wrote was called Why Brands Die. The second article I wrote was called Why Advertising Agencies Don't Advertise. So I kept publishing something at about the pace of once a month, and then the phone started to ring inquiry started to come in um and i've no i've just i see myself as a writer um all strategy is autobiographical so if you if you say okay blair go go build an audience for this business how are you going to do it i'm probably going to think in terms of writing first mm-hmm. some people are networkers they're going to think i'm going to go to events Or be active on social media these days. Some people are high drive, rejection proof, classic transactional salespeople. Give me the phone. Mm -hmm. So there are a handful of kind of different approaches. Some approaches work better for different types of businesses. In the long run, my actually, my motivational makeup is well suited to agency new business development. I'm patient enough. I have a high need for authority and respect. So I'm comfortable with a strong point of view. So my the content that I've produced has always had a strong point of view. And if I look at the failure of content marketing in general among my clients or competitors, the failure is usually a lack of a meaningful point of view. Hmm. So it started with me even before I launched this business and went, so I thought, okay, I'm going to launch this business. I'm going to call it win without pitching. What do I do? Well, the first thing I do is I sit down and start writing and the writing turned into a book. And I thought, well, sell this book as the first means. And then I started selling some books and then I started packaging some training up, et cetera. But how has the platform changed? So I've always written, what was a newsletter, what is now a blog. The frequency has changed over the years as I've been distracted by other things like writing a book. Um, Beyond the Win Without Pitching guidebook that was in print from 2002 to 2010, in 2010, I launched the Win Without Pitching manifesto. That continues to sell really well. In January of 2018, I launched Pricing Creativity. Another book that I sell from my website, that's generated, that's, that generates decent six figure, um, sales every year and it probably will for quite a while. So that's been a revenue generator. It's also led to other things. I launched a podcast three years ago with David C Baker called two bobs. Um, there's so many different ways. If you have something to say, if you have some knowledge and a point of view, there are so many different platforms And I think maybe the danger is just getting watered down. But I continue to write blog posts. I write books. I'm trying to increase the frequency of the books. Um, what about about speaking? You do some some speaking,
0: right? Oh yeah, yeah yeah. So when was that um, easy to start? Difficult to start? Uh, How did that fit into this picture of the the platform?
1: That's how I met David C. Baker is I, um, he invited me to speak at an event that he was running. I, so I said, I've always seen myself as a writer. I've mm-hmm. also all, always seen myself as a speaker. Um, I, When I was in eighth grade in junior high school in Canada, I won the school oratory contest Um and the topic of my speech was advertising. So <laughs> <laughs> then I stumble into the world of advertising. How funny. Um, I write because I see myself as a writer, and then it leads to these opportunities to speak. And the, and the first few speaking opportunities, I was horrible. I was just absolutely horrible as a rookie. Um, I think I'm okay at it now. In fact, I was giving a speech three weeks ago in Edinburgh, and I was a few minutes in and my host was sitting in the front row waving at me. And I said, uh, something wrong? He said, yeah, you're doing the wrong speech. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, oh, <laughs> it was the same speech I'd done the night before in London, but I'd forgotten I'd committed to doing two, two different speeches. Hmm. So I started laughing and I said, uh, somebody tell a joke while well, I changed my slides. I changed my slides and then I launched into the other speech and it went well. And I was thinking afterwards, wow. I don't think I could have recovered from that in the first five years of my speaking career, but you know, 15 or 18 years in it's uh it was actually quite funny and fun. Yeah. That probably made the whole thing more memorable. In fact, <laughs> somebody the tweeted the exact moment of a photo of the exact moment when I realized I was doing the wrong speech and the look on my face is priceless.
0: So one one last question here. What's the leading indicator, as a, as a self made expert? It, maybe it's not one thing. Maybe it's a sort of a pattern or a feeling of exhilaration. I don't know. But uh, for you, what's the leading indicator that things are working? You should keep investing in your expertise. not
1: the lagging indicator which yep. is the
0: bank account or the the balance yeah, sheet yeah.
1: yeah well i think of the ultimate leading indicator when i say ultimate like you can there are leading indicators but some trigger others or some are predictors of other further indicators so um like number of training inquiries is a function of web traffic web traffic is a function of blog post subscribers or newsletter subscribers. So I think if I could only look at one of those metrics, I want to see my net subscriber list grow. i not sure if that's the question you're looking for, but if my, if my opt-ins continue to grow at a healthy rate, um, net opt-ins, then, um, That's a sign that people think I'm uh, creating value in the world, and everything else, as long as people think I'm creating value in the world, everything flows from that. And that would be the ultimate leading indicator for me.
0: Perfect. I was going to ask if we could abstract it away, but I think you got to that sort of foundational abstracted uh, some measure of value creation in the world. Is that fair to as a sort of stripping away the specifics of email marketing versus something else.
1: Yeah. I don't know. There's probably a more fulfilling answer than that. Um, what might that be? If we want to, what's that? What might that be? I don't know. I think if we want to stick with the like strict definition of a leading indicator, it's these things that happen that predict future success. Um, there are lots of them, but the one that I've if, ca- if I could only look at one number, I want to look at opt-ins. And if so, if you take opt-ins away, if I were relying on other channels, like it might be subscribers to my YouTube channel, which I don't have, um, <clears throat> if that were my channel, yeah, it might be uh, speaking engagement. It, in engagements, it might be book sales. I mean, the truth is, we track all of those numbers, and I want all of those numbers to go up. Um. Another, you know, if I think of it more as a leading indicator for me that in terms of not being an external measure of something, a response in the marketplace, if I just like, if I knew in my gut based on what I'm doing and how I'm feeling that things are going in the right direction, it would be, um, writing momentum. When I, uh. There are times when, uh, I just, we, we all, I think we all get kind of bogged down by the ankle biting issues in our business. Hmm. And we, um, especially when we're trying to grow and we're adding team members and we're having to kind of sort through policies and procedures and processes and things for the first time, we're, we're kind of building like infrastructure, uh, your day can get eaten up by just resp- like putting out fires. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had a period this week, we're recording on a Friday afternoon. I've written more this week than I have in, oh, I don't know. I haven't had as productive a week in a year, mm. e- easily a year. So finishing this week, I feel like, oh, man, I am on fire and the more you write, the more you, uh, you kind of kickstart these other ideas that you want to write about. So as long as you're capturing those, you, the momentum is huge. And when you stop writing, I shouldn't say you, so, uh, but I'm extrapolating to everybody else my own from my own ex- personal experience. When I stop writing, I stop seeing things to write about but when I'm writing, I'm in the groove. I keep going. You're just, I'm just throwing off all these other ideas and making us, I'm going to come back and write about this, going to write about that. So if you're looking for a more personal leading indicator, um, that would be it. Blair ends.
0: Thank you for this generous window into your self-made expertise journey.
1: The pleasure has been mine. I imagine some people will find some value in this. (laughs) I think I've enjoyed the therapy. Yeah, thank you.